to be with you. As Colton said, we're continuing our uh, series on words to live by because words are powerful. Words create culture. The words that we choose have the capacity to impact your world and impact the world of other people. And we know this intuitively. You probably grew up and there was certain words that were said to you that affected you for greater or for worse. You know, maybe you grew up and you, you heard words like, you're such an idiot. I mean, I heard that word a lot. Uh, and, or, you know, what are you thinking? You know, and those things, they, they actually started to shape you and how you thought about the world and yourself. Or maybe you grew up in a world uh, where maybe you heard more words like, I'm so proud of you. Um, that was so great. You know, I see so much potential in you. And the words that people have spoken to us have actually shaped us and created a posture uh, in us that has affected our world. Uh, that's why in Proverbs it says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. So the things that we speak have a, a great amount of ability to impact somebody else's world and impact our, our own world. And that's on an individual level. But the words that we also choose collectively impact the environment and the culture that is created around us. And so we must choose our words carefully. In fact, I think particularly as a faith community that is oriented around Jesus and has said we want to follow Jesus, the words that we choose to live by have a great impact on the environment that we create which also has an impact on how people experience God. And so we want to be very careful about what words do we live by. And so as Colton said, this is a series that's really about our values, but it's, it's more than our values. It's the words that we've chosen to be markers that define us as a faith community centered around Jesus. And so last week we looked at the words, don't do life alone, which you hear often. Colton just mentioned that as we talk about groups. But last week we said, if you just pursue community for the sake of community, you will always be disappointed. Because as humans, we have, this, we have this need to have belonging. We have this need to be accepted. We have this need to know what our identity is and what our purpose is. And that's kind of inside of us. And if we don't first go to God with those things, we will go to one another. And when we go to one another for those things that only God can give us, we are perpetually disappointed and frustrated and hurt because we're looking to one another to give us only what God can give us. And so... A faith community is one that has actually gotten their purpose, their identity, their significance, their belonging, their sense of self and worth from Jesus, which then gives us the grace and ability to be in community together. Because now I'm no longer looking at you, expecting you to give me what only God can give me. I'm I'm allowing you to be you. And so that kind of moves into our next value, our next set of words that we want to live by, and that is, no perfect people allowed. So, if you're here this morning and you're perfect, um, it's okay. We're just going to invite you to leave. <laughs> no, I'm. Uh, uh, let's just take a moment. Like, if you if you're perfect, it's okay. You can. We'll wait for a second. It's okay. Okay. So if you're staying, we had people come in. They're like, okay, uh, that's me. Uh, so if you're staying, so my assumption is there's some agreement with this phrase. And the reason we say that there's no perfect people allowed is because there aren't any perfect people. And if we think that we're perfect, in some ways we've lied to ourselves. And if you want to pretend to be perfect or pretend to have your life together, uh, that's great, but we don't want to play those games here. I don't think the church is the place where God intended us to play the game of pretense and pretending. And in fact, I think when we do that, we actually prevent the very gospel, the good news the life-transforming power of Jesus from impacting us and those around us. Uh, So we want to 
live by these words, no perfect people allowed. We want to be real with each other um, because it's in that space, it's in the space of grace, grace and the soil of authenticity that I think life, tra- life transformation happens. That's the environment where growth uh, can happen. And Jesus reserved some of his harshest words. And Jesus said some very, very hard things. And so people that think, you know, Jesus only said very nice and loving things. They actually haven't read Scripture. He said some very, very hard things. But if you read the Scriptures, particularly the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the beginning of your New Testament that talks about the life and the ministry and the teachings of Jesus, uh, you will notice that the harshest words that Jesus gave were not towards those whom the religious community thought he should give those words towards. He didn't give his harshest words to the prostitutes the tax collectors who were traitors and working for the Roman government and oppressing their own people. He didn't give the hardest words to those, uh, those repeat offenders and those notorious sinners. In fact, people were frustrated with Jesus because he kept hanging out with those people. The people that he gave his hardest words towards were those who were elite in the religious community. Over and over again, he gave the hardest words to that community. And so when we talk about no perfect people allowed, it's this recognition that all of us, whether we're trying to hide it or not, come from a place of sin, which the Bible uses to say that we've just missed the mark. We haven't lived life perfectly. We have a mess. And whether I know your story or not, my guess is because you're human, I know this because you're human, that uh, you are coming from a mess. Or you're going to walk into a mess. Uh, and if you're like, my life is perfect right now, just give it a minute. Uh, things change. And as human beings, our experience is mess. And the question actually becomes, as we live life and when we, we maybe start to believe that there might be a God, is to think, what would God think about my mess if he saw me for who I am in my mess? Which is a really, really good question. I remember when I was very young, we were living in the country, um, and out, out of the big metropolis uh, that I grew up in uh, later in my life, uh, there was 3,000 people in the town I grew up with, there was an even smaller community I lived with, uh, and there were seven houses in that little, uh, I don't know what you would call it. Uh, but my dad decided, we were out in the farm uh, area, he said, we're going to buy a go-kart for the kids. And I was about five or six at the time, and he thought this would be a great idea. Um, and it was. It was fun. I, was, I learned how to drive for the first time out in, that, uh, in the country on the go-kart. And I remember like, learning how to steer, and I would oversteer, and I'd end up in the ditch, and my dad would have to come out, and he had to take me out of the ditch. And I was learning how to use the gas pedal and the brake pedal. Uh, and now, if you're used to driving, obviously it's intuitive for you. You know where they are. But if you remember, when you were learning, you had to actually think about those things. And so as a little six, seven-year-old boy... Uh, driving this go-kart, which is way too much power underneath my feet than I should have had. Uh, trying to figure out which one is the gas pedal and the brake was, was really difficult. Uh, so I remember it was like one of my first outings without my dad around. I'm like, I'm taking out the go-kart. I'm going to go rip up the countryside. And I take the go-kart out, and I, uh, I'm ripping around. And I come to bring it back, and the garage door is open, and I'm coming into the garage door. Uh, and I can't really remember... Uh, which one was the gas pedal and the brake pedal. Uh, And I'm coming in fast, and I'm like, I need to slow down. So I hit that brake all the way to the floor. The problem was it wasn't the brake. It was the gas pedal. And so I went full on as fast as that thing could go right into into the garage. Uh, I smoked the back of the garage door, this this earth-shattering sound that rings through the house. Uh, 
my dad just bought a brand new bicycle. He hadn't even rid it yet. He, it was sitting at the back of the garage door, and I smashed his new bicycle, just made a mess of it all to pieces, uh, and I was, like, devastated and so afraid, and my dad came running into the garage, uh, and I don't want to tell you how he responded, but I'll just say, uh, I was so terrified and ashamed, even to this day when I think about it, uh, that my dad saved up and bought that bicycle, and he didn't even get to ride it, and me, uh, I made a mess of it. And that mess was loud, and I couldn't hide from him, and he came out, and he saw what had happened, uh, and I felt so badly about it. And I think the question for all of us, because we do make a mess in our lives, uh, this is what the Bible tells us, that, that, we, are, that we all sin, and we're going to look at that in a second, but the question is, when God shows up on the scene, whether it was the spectacular crash of a mess that everybody could see and everybody knew about, or whether it's a mess that you're trying to hide and you think that God and you're fooling God and other people, well, God can see it. And the question is, when God sees our mess, how does he respond to it? What does he say? What is his posture? In John chapter 8, is one of my favorite stories about Jesus. Because I think in John chapter 8, we see the posture and the response of God when he comes across us in our brokenness and our mess. It's often referred to as the story of the woman caught in adultery. I think it's a bad name. If I were to rewrite the titles in your Bible, uh, I wouldn't call it the woman caught in adultery. The, the name of the story should be the men caught in hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is a term that literally means to play a role or to hide behind a mask, to be an actor. And so when we use the word hypocrisy, we're talking about people who are projecting or presenting a certain version of themselves that isn't actually in line with who they truly are. And so they're like actors, and they go through life as actors. And we see in the story that there's some people that are playing an act, and there's some people that are actually presented in their full, vulnerable, authentic self And we see God in Jesus responding to both of these scenarios in this powerful story. So I'm going to read the story, and then we're going to walk through it. And it comes, like I said, from John chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 2. And this is what it reads. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple, of course, this is Jesus, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand up before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin... Be the first to throw a stone at her. He stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. It is a powerful story with so much to learn in a few short verses. 
And it begins that Jesus was at, again at the temple courts because this is what he was doing day in and day out, going to the temple. He was teaching. He was uh, informing and, uh, and rallying a following around him, which was creating jealousy for the religious leaders. All the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. So they plotted, as we'll learn, that this was a trap. We'll read in a second. This is a trap that they created. They plotted and found this woman who was caught in adultery. Uh, but I would ask the question when I read the story, where is the man? Like the last time I checked, I'm not 100% sure, but the last time I checked, the act of adultery included two people, right? And they only brought one. And so we already see that something is a little sideways and lopsided in the story. And so they bring in this woman caught in the act of adultery and perhaps the man was there and he was a part of the plan maybe they sent a man in there as a ploy in the plan we don't really know uh, why the man didn't show up in this situation but the other question i would have is what are the pharisees doing in somebody's bedroom that they would be able to catch somebody in the act of adultery like how do you actually go about doing that and so there's all this like suspicion right in the right in the beginning of the story Something already seems off. The motives already seem a little sideways. And so they bring this woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And so they talk about how the law of Moses commanded us to sow in such a woman, and, and the law of Moses actually has listed in it 613 commandments. 613. And the religious leader, these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, they had devoted their lives to keeping these commandments. This was core to who they were. In fact, their entire education system was about studying the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, understanding what God had said, how he had commanded them to live, and they took this very seriously. They were trying to be holy as God himself is holy. They were trying to be perfect. They wanted to follow the law. This was priority number one for them. In fact, they had... This is so much of a priority that they created uh, what was referred to as fence laws that would prevent them from breaking one of those 613 laws. So they had 1,500 fence laws on top of the 613 laws. So a fence law, basically, if this was the line and you're not supposed to cross it, uh, they would say, well, I want to make sure I don't even get close to the line, so I'm going to create all of these other lines and fence laws to prevent me ever from getting close to that which I'm not supposed to do. And so for an example, in Exodus 20, verse 10, it's, one of the laws was you should not work on the Sabbath day. And so the Pharisees and the religious leaders trying to take this law seriously said, we've got to create some fence laws so we know exactly what work is and what it isn't. We don't want to break the law. We want to uphold the law. And so, uh, you know, some of those 1,500 extra fence laws, there was 39 of them that were around the Sabbath law. And an example of one would be you weren't allowed to spit onto the ground because if you're spit would land in the dirt, you would be guilty of plowing on the Sabbath. One of the other offense laws was you couldn't even swat a fly, because if you swat a fly, you would be guilty of hunting on the Sabbath. You know, I'm not much of a hunter, but according to this definition, I am, I am an all-star. Uh, there, there was one of the laws that said a woman wasn't allowed to look at her own reflection on the Sabbath day, not because looking at her reflection was wrong, but because they, they viewed, like, 
doing self-maintenance as work on the Sabbath, and so you wouldn't do it. And so instead of uh, them being tempted to pluck one of their gray hairs out, uh, they said, you can't look at your own reflection. Fence law. And so over time, they just created loopholes, right? Because, you know, this became really difficult to live when you had 2,000-plus laws they were trying to follow, and it's like, how do you even go about your day? And so they created loopholes. Uh, and so an example of one of those loopholes is if your house was burning down on a Sabbath, they, they said that you, one of the fence laws was you weren't allowed to carry your own clothes out of your house because that carrying of your own clothes uh, was an act of work. So if your house is burning down, too bad. You gotta, don't carry anything out. But they found a way around this. They said, well, you can't carry the clothes that you're wearing. And so there is a law that says if you're wearing the clothes, you can run out with the clothes that you have on. And so if you layered your clothes on, if you had like multiple sets of clothes on, I put all my pants on, put all my shirts on, and then I walked out of my house that was burning, then that was okay. So this just gives you an idea. Like they just really, really wanted to be holy. They wanted to be perfect. They didn't want to break any of the laws. And to be clear, Jesus is not against rules. Jesus is not against holiness. Jesus is God with flesh on, and God is holy. So this isn't what's at stake here. What Jesus is showing us is that rules don't change the human heart. Rules don't transform anybody. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about how the whole entire law was actually given to us not to fix sin, but only to make us aware of sin. The law and the rules were given to us for us to realize that we were incapable of keeping the law ourselves. And so once we became aware of our need, once we became aware of our brokenness, our imperfection, then we would actually have the awareness and the posture of knowing that we can't do this our own, which actually sets the stage for Jesus to come and deliver us and to save us and to transform us. So Paul says that the whole law was actually just given as you tried to follow it, you would realize, I can't follow this, and now you're aware of your mess. And then the question becomes, well, what is God going to do about it? Hypocrisy is being focused on the outside and ignoring what is on the inside. And so the Pharisees, they set up this trap. They throw this woman in front of Jesus, standing in the pu- in, out in public by the temple, likely naked because she was caught in the act of adultery for all people to see her. And they put Jesus in the situation to answer this philosophical and theological question. And they referred to a very specific scripture to try and trap him. And they knew their scriptures really, really well, better than any of us do. And you can tell a lot by a person just by listening to the types of scriptures that they want to quote at you. We can tell a lot by the heart of the Pharisees just by where their focus was. And so Jesus had this reputation of being soft on sin because he was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and the outcasts in society, all the people that weren't up to par, that weren't trying to live a holy life. Uh, The religious leaders separated themselves from them, and Jesus actually moved towards them, or they moved towards Jesus, probably a little bit of both. And so they were frustrated. They saw that he was soft on sin from their perspective, and so they had this thought, Let's put him in a trap where he has to choose between being obedient to the law, which is clear, or doing what he keeps doing and having this posture of acceptance and graciousness towards people. Let's make him choose between truth and grace and see what he does. And so they create this scenario, this trap. They bring this woman caught in adultery. 
refer to the law and say, Jesus, this is what the law says, and this is what the law says. Now what do you say? Show us, Jesus. Jesus had to choose right here between his reputation and his mission, between his reputation and his purpose. I don't know about you, but sometimes because of people pleasing or what people think, we can actually change our behavior. And Jesus, over and over again, we see that he is not afraid of being misunderstood. He is not afraid of disappointing people. He is not afraid of what people might say about him. But they put him in the situation to see if they can pressure him to pick one way or the other, to conform to their expectations. And if he doesn't, now they've set him up to actually uh, stone the woman and accuse him of being a heretic. And so how does Jesus respond? So they ask Jesus, this is what the law of Moses says, what do you say? When you're caught in your mess, and you're caught in your worst moment, and God shows up on the scene, what does he say? How does he respond? What do you think God would tell you? I think what we assume God would say to us in the midst of our mess, tells us a lot about who we think God is and what he's like. And people for thousands of years have been so keen to tell other people what God is like and what he thinks about them, much like these Pharisees. But the question is, is God really like that? If Jesus ever had a perfect opportunity to condemn somebody and hold holiness up as his primary value, this is the moment right here. The woman caught in her sin. The law of Moses put before him. Jesus had the opportunity to condemn this woman. But he's not going to play that game. And I don't know what it is about human nature that, that people seem to get some glee out of seeing other people suffer and seeing other people in their mess. It, I think, you know, this is what is really sick about the religious leaders um, and about the human heart, uh, and I don't exclude myself from that, is that we, in our own sinfulness, can actually get some twisted sense of satisfaction when somebody else is having a rough time. And we can think, well, at least it's not me. Or at least I'm more secure in my position. Well, I was right. In fact, I remember years ago, confessions of a pastor, years ago I was uh, playing golf and, uh, and a couple things uh, that you need to know. I'm not very good at golf and I'm very, very competitive. Uh, that gap makes it really difficult to be uh, on a golf course. So anyways, I was, I was at this kind of social pastor golf day thing uh, with some pastors that I didn't even know very well yet, just getting to know them. Uh, and there was one, one pastor there who was a very, very, very good golfer. And, uh, uh, you know, no word of a lie, I judged him. I'm like, if you're a good golfer and you're a pastor, you're not a good pastor. Uh, <laughs> So we're out there, and like every stinking time he hits this ball, and it's like 300 yards, and it's straight, and it's exactly where he's aiming all the time. And hole after hole, I'm watching this, and I'm like shanking it, and I'm like, I'm down so many strokes, and I'm just, ugh, I, I don't like to lose. Anyways, we get, it was like midway through the round, we're on the eighth or ninth tee box, and he goes to swing at the ball, and the whole thing just shanks, and it, like, it goes all the way sideways. And I just couldn't control myself. I was like, yes! And I started clapping. And, and he turns at me. He's like, what kind of sick individual are you? He's like, You're, why are you cheering? I'm like, I just wanted to see him do so bad. Uh, I, I, don't, like, I don't know what it is about our human nature, but we see it so clearly in the life of the, 
these religious leaders who wanted to be perfect, and they were trying really hard at this game of religion to get it all right. And there was something about them that when they saw other people not doing as well and, and living in their mess and their brokenness, instead of having a posture of, 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 of humility and graciousness, they had this posture of elitism. And it almost secured them in that position, like we are as good as we think. We are better than most people. And Jesus comes into the scene in this kind of environment, and they, they've set up this game. They're saying, okay, Jesus, what do you say? How are you going to respond to this? And I think most people think that God responds like the religious leaders and the Pharisees. I think most people have this assumption that God, when he comes across me, across my life and my mess and, and my imperfections, that he comes with this tone of judgment and condemnation. If you read the actual story God with flesh on, Jesus himself, does not act like the Pharisees. God can always see us in these extravagant public messes that we sometimes have, in our private messes that we try and hide. We can't hide from God. And so what does God say? What does God say to us? And if you think God is all about condemnation and judgment, I would just have to say you don't actually know who God is yet. They didn't understand God's intentions even in the scriptures because they didn't understand God's heart. They were quoting scripture, ironically, to God, not realizing that God himself was there and what was happening in that situation would one day be written in scripture. But here's the thing. is They were, in one sense, they were right. She was a mess. She made a mistake. She was an adulterer. I mean, have you ever had somebody spread things about you towards other people that aren't true? It's really frustrating. It's really hurtful. I've had it happen to me uh, where you are aware that people are saying things about you that aren't true, and that carries with it a lot of pain and bitterness and forgiveness that you've got to work through. But that's not the worst thing. You know, what's even worse than people saying things about you that isn't true is people saying things about you that is true. When we have this truth about our lives that we can't hide and now it is actually given out to others, that is really, really difficult. The most terrifying place to be is naked in public with people seeing you in your mess for all that you are. And Jesus shows us that we are more than we are even at our worst point. In fact, Jesus shows us that even at your worst God sees you at your best. Even at your worst, even in the midst of your mess, God sees the person he created you to be. And no matter your past, no matter what decisions you've made, no matter what mess you might be coming out of, whether they're totally public or totally hidden, God does not define you by your worst moments. He actually looks at you and knows who you created you to be and invites you to live a different story. Even at your worst, God sees you at your best. Back to the story, Jesus bends down and he starts to write on the ground with his finger. And one of the interesting things about Jesus is that he never wrote anything down. I mean, we have all these script, we have the scriptures, we have the, all these words, but Jesus actually himself never wrote 
those words. He never wrote a song. He never wrote a chapter. He never wrote a book. He never even wrote a sentence. And this is the only time that we see that Jesus writes something. And even here he's writing on the sand, on this temporary canvas that won't be kept. Yet, we know that Jesus is, as John referred to him earlier in the book, the living word of God. Everything Jesus did. Everything Jesus said. Every action Jesus made was Scripture. Everything about him was the, le- was the living revelation of who God was. And so not only are we reading about Jesus in Scripture, we're watching Jesus react and interact in Scripture, and it is the living word as we see what he does. And so Jesus writes in the ground with his finger, and they keep on questioning him. And it says he straightened up, and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. And so we see the posture of Jesus changing as the story is unfolding. And, and at first he straightens up, and this is a position of confrontation. He's confronting the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He's standing up to the manipulators, the abusers. Jesus is stepping into a public confrontation, and they put him to the test, and he stands up in the midst of the test, and he says, I am not going to just sit here. He actually stands up in this confrontational stance towards the religious elite. And then Jesus, pay attention to his posture, he stoops down and gets in the dirt in front of the woman, which would not be a posture that any man in that culture would have ever done. Even the physical posture of Jesus in the story preaches the good news and the gospel of Jesus. This posture demonstrates that Jesus when he's faced with the mess of people, doesn't stand in this confrontational position looking down at the woman. He actually gets down into the mess of the dirt with the woman. In fact, when we pay attention to what Jesus stands up against, he's standing up against pretense. He's standing up against pretending. He's standing up against hypocrisy. He's standing up against people that use religion as a way to lie and manipulate and pressure other people and get their means through religious practice. He's standing up against all of those things. But the woman who is actually most publicly a mess, he gets down in the dirt in front of her. He's her advocate. And it's interesting when you think about the words accuser and advocate because accuser is literally the meaning of devil and Satan. Advocate is actually the name that the Bible refers to uh, when it talks about the Holy Spirit. And we see the religious leaders in the story. This is why Jesus calls them at, at another point in the story, he said, uh, you follow your true father, Satan, because they're accusers. Jesus, we see the spirit of Jesus in this posture where he's advocating for this woman in the midst of her mess. And every time I read the story, I would sure like to know what did he write. Wouldn't you like to know? Well, I did some reading. And here it is. You ready? I read... Countless commentaries, looking at scholars, and not one of them could tell me what, they, what he wrote. So uh, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, but I think, I, I, I think it's, it's okay to use our imagination in the story considering the context of what happens. Here's my guess. As I think he, he stooped down into the stand and started writing, and perhaps he wrote the names of the Pharisees. He knew them. Perhaps he wrote 
he named some of the sins that they were hiding behind their masks and their hypocrisy, and he wrote those things on the sound, the sand. Perhaps he, he wrote something down that alluded to their own stories that made them aware in that public situation of their own mess. And here it is. The wisdom of God. As they're trying to trap Jesus and make him pick between the law and grace, he doesn't take... He doesn't play that game. And we see the genius of Jesus in this moment. He's making a statement. He says, Any one of you who's without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus is saying, emphatically, he is saying that anyone, absolutely anyone, can be a part of the family of God. Anyone can receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. Anyone except for perfect people. There's no perfect people allowed. This is similar to what Jesus said when he said, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. Because it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. What Jesus was saying when he said that wasn't that there's some people that are healthy and there's some people that are sick. He was saying, everybody is sick. Everybody is a mess. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God and has sinned, except that some people don't admit it or believe it. Some people are in denial about their own situation. Some people don't recognize that they have a need. Anyone can come to Jesus and be a part of the family of God, anyone except for those who think that they're perfect. And this creates a little bit of an irony in an interesting environment in a church community, in a faith community, where we actually think that there is a proper way to live, that there is a certain behavior that God has called us to, a certain people that he's called us to be. Because what happens, though, is when we have an expectation of a certain way of living, let's call this holiness, to be holy like God is holy, and we say this is the primary thing. I think when that starts to happen, we start to create an environment that is completely opposed to what Jesus is trying to do because when holiness becomes primary, I believe hiding becomes ordinary. When holiness becomes primary, our temptation to hide and to be hypocrites and to pretend like we got our act together becomes normative. If perfection becomes our goal, then performance actually becomes the norm. Because here's the tension that starts to happen. If, if the Bible is true, we're going to read this, this is the next slide, the verse, but if all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we have a primary goal of being holy, our only response outside of Jesus is to pretend. And this creates, this focus on holiness creates a fear of authenticity because how could I be vulnerable if the expectation is that I have my life together in a certain kind of way? This was the environment that the religious leaders were creating. This is the thing that Jesus was standing up against. When I was in grade 10, um, Actually, let's go back. When I was in grade six, I've referred to this part of my story before, and if you're, you've been around SunWest, you've, you've heard parts of my story. But when I was in grade six, the fangs of por- pornography clinged on to my soul. I found a stash of pornographic magazines outside of a friend's house. And then I had another friend who had an older brother that had porn magazines in his house. And as a, six year, as a grade sixer, even before I had hit puberty, uh, I had 
actually acquired this addiction to pornography, and I lived in a Christian community in a small town, and I had felt like I had to hide this because I, I believed that I was the only one, and I was so ashamed. I had the sense that this isn't the way I ought to be living. This is something I would never want people to know. If this was put out in public, I wouldn't know what I would do with myself if people knew the mess that I was. And I remember growing up, uh, grade 6, grade 7, grade 8, grade 9, I had like the secret that I was just so afraid of people finding out. And the, the culture of a certain type of behavior and person that I believed that I was supposed to be actually created the pressure to hide. And ironically, it's in secrecy and hiding that sin actually grows and gets more of a hold in our lives. And so I, I spent years hiding. I remember I, got, I was in grade 10, uh, and I was working at a camp for the summer, and, um, and I was working with this, this friend of mine called James, and I can say his name because he was, he turned out, he was one of my best friends. He ended up being in my, my, uh, one of my groomsmen at my wedding. So we were there at staff training, and we were sleeping in a cabin. It just ended up being him and I, and uh, I'd had the secret for years, and I thought, this is my moment. I'm going to tell James. This guy seems like a good guy. I'm going to trust him. And so I remember in this moment, I bore my soul, and I said, James, this is... I've been hiding this thing for years. And you know James' response? Sorry, I love you, James. But his response was, are you serious? I've never struggled with that. I, I actually haven't met anybody who's actually struggled with that. I remember, like, I'm like, okay. And so in that moment, the, the shame just heaped on. And you know what happened? Is I would go back into hiding for another three years. I was like, well, that wasn't safe. For another three years, until I got into a, a community when I was a young adult, and I started witnessing and hearing other people share their own mess and vulnerability, and it created a space where I said, I think I can actually bring my mess here. A funny thing happens is when we make holiness primary, is it starts to create an environment where we don't feel like we can truly be ourselves. And this was the world that the Pharisees were building. And if we're not careful, the, this is the world that the church can build when we say holiness is actually the main thing. And so now we get a whole group of people that are pretending. And I think part of the issue that's going on in the Western world right now is, is the pretending has caught up with the church. Pretending catches up with you. Holiness is actually the result of us receiving the gift of grace and forgiveness of Jesus and taking his holiness. He gives us his holiness. Holiness is actually the result of God's Spirit working in our lives. Holiness is the result of actually the position of humility and vulnerability, and ironically, the place of saying, I am not holy. Jesus, I need your help, and he gives us his holiness. Romans says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody say all. This includes you. Sorry, I didn't know if you knew that. All includes you. And we, we've heard this verse before, but the second part of the verse, actually the next verse is so important, and it's part of it. It said, all have fallen, sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And what does it say? All are justified by working really hard, getting their act together, trying to be perfect, trying to please God. That's not what it says, is it? It says, all are justified freely by his what? His grace. Through redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Grace, when we recognize that We've all sinned that we're not perfect. 
and that we're all in need of grace, that grace breeds an environment of authenticity. And I believe when grace and authenticity come together, there's an environment for transformation and growth. This is the, this is the environment that Jesus was trying to create. This is what he was standing up against, against the Pharisees. This is what he was inviting the woman to experience. And so, at this, those who heard, when Jesus said, let those who are without sin throw the first stone, because they all showed up with their stone, and they said, we're going to kill this woman. This is what the law says. And Jesus said, well, that's, you're right. You know, that is what the law says. Uh, and if you're perfect, if you're without sin, you can go ahead and you can throw that stone. And then a fascinating thing, it's, it, says the old, it says one by one they began to go away and the older ones first until only Jesus was less. And I, I've always like wondered at this, why the older ones first? I think it's possible that the longer you live, the longer your experience of, uh, you have these experiences that you know, you're not quite as amazing as you thought, you're not as perfect as you thought, uh, you, you've had enough mess-ups in your life that you said, okay, I'm, I don't believe a lie about myself anymore. I think for many years I thought that's probably what this was referring to and it's possible that the older left first because they were most aware of their own mess. But as I ponder that, I'm not sure I believe that's true. And I don't think that's true because I think the oldest in that culture, even more so, but I would say even in my experience, the older people get, the more unlikely they are to be vulnerable because they feel like there's more to lose. They have positions at work. They're in a marriage. They have kids. They have family. They have people that depend on them. And there's more and more pressure. And they, they, you know, even the thought of, like, at this point in my life, I should have had this figure out. There's more pressure, I think, the older that you get to have your act together. And in my experience, younger people are more willing to admit their own vulnerability and their own mess because they admittedly are trying to figure out life. And so Why? Why would it be that the older people leave first and then the younger people after them? And here's my hunch. My hunch is that the younger people were respecting the environment that the older people were setting. Particularly in that time where these religious leaders and authority were kind of seen at the top of the totem pole. And to be a young person and go against that culture would be very, very difficult. And I wonder if the younger people were there. They were waiting. They were waiting for this messy, imperfect community that Jesus was trying to create. But they were dependent on those that were in authority to actually be vulnerable first before they would choose to be vulnerable themselves. Because something powerful happens when somebody who is in a position of authority, chooses vulnerability. When a, if you're a boss at work and you choose not to be perfect, it actually changes your whole culture. When you're a parent and you, cho- and you choose to actually be a little bit transparent and, and, and acknowledge in front of your kids that you are still a work in progress, it does something in your family. When you are a friend and you are the first to say, hey, I've got this mess, it actually creates a space for your other friend to step into and say, I need grace too. I think the young people in the story waited and waited until one of the older guys broke and dropped a stone and walked away. And so one by one, they're walking away. No perfect people allowed until only Jesus was left. Jesus stood up, straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. 
then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declares. So Jesus stands up again, this position of confrontation that we see earlier in the story, except this time he's not confronting the woman. He's confronting the lies that she has believed. She's confronting the accusations, the half-truths. The Pharisees were right in one sense with their accusations, but they weren't right because they were defining this woman by her worst moment. And you, do you know where your accusations stop? Your accusations stop at the feet of Jesus. Your accusations stop when they get to God. No matter how many voices in the present or the past are telling you what a mess you are, all of those things can stop at the feet of Jesus. The only reason I can stand up here and talk about my own mess and my own story is because I know that the things, the worst parts of my own story don't define who I am. They don't make me acceptable or unacceptable. It's Jesus and what he's done that actually speaks my worth, speaks my identity, speaks my belonging. And so no matter how old you are, you could probably go back into your childhood and they might be present voices that are accusing you. And my guess is that all of us have even voices from our past when we were in school, when we were a child, when we were a teen, when... You know, that, that parent that you had or the spouse that you had or the relationship that you were in. We have these accusers casting their accusations on us. Past and present. They all live in our heads. And Jesus stands up in the center and he says to this woman, the only one standing, he says, where are your accusers? And he says, she says, they're not here. And here's the truth is that In the midst of our mess, we don't have to live in denial and say that's not true. We don't have to hide. In fact, Jesus doesn't want us to hide. The response when accusations come before us and say, this is your mess, and we can say fully, you're absolutely right. It's true. I am a mess. But it's not who I am. I am a mess, but it's not the whole story. I am a mess, but it's actually irrelevant to who I am now. You don't have to change your past because it's actually impossible to change your past. All you have to do is allow God to change your future. And all the processes in religion that require us to to try harder and give penance and, and try and get perfect and holy before God, those are from humans. They aren't from God. The only pathway to holiness that God gives us is making us aware of our need of grace. The system and the law and the rules were only set up set up to make us aware of our need for a savior, our need for a redeemer, our need for a forgiver, our need for God to actually come and help us. And then Jesus, at the end of the story, says, go now, leave your life of sin. And this is what I love about Jesus. Some people think that Jesus didn't care about truth or didn't care about living. He absolutely did, but Jesus knew that our pathway to living a transformed life wasn't by trying harder. Go now and leave your life of sin. This, this section that says go now in the Greek language is actually one word, and some of the translations say now go and leave your life of sin, which I think is a better translation, and this is why. Why does the order matter? Go now sounds like he's shooing her away. Go now. Get out of here. That's not what he's saying. Now go. Now, why does he use the word now? Because she just encountered grace. Because she just was seen in the mess of who she was. She encountered the living God and he didn't throw a stone at her. He called her who she actually was. He spoke belonging and identity into her, and he said, now, because of this experience with grace, go and live a life without sin. It's because she encountered grace. We can believe the lie that it's holiness that earns us grace, but then it's not grace anyways. Holiness is actually the byproduct of the grace that Jesus gives us. 
So this is not the story of someone getting away with their worst moment. It's actually the story of someone who is given freedom to be the best version of themselves. There's a God that sees all of us at our worst, and he still chooses to see the best in you. And so Jesus says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone, and then everybody walks away one by one until there's only one standing there. Why is there only one standing there? Because Jesus is the one who was without sin. What a beautiful twist in the story. There's only one person who is without sin. There's only one person who is perfect. There was only one person who could hold the stone and say, I have the right to throw it. And he says, who is left that condemns you? And she says, no one. He says, that's right. He was the one who could throw the stone. And he drops it. In fact... When we understand the good news and the gospel of Jesus, we recognize that Jesus didn't throw the stone. Jesus received the stones. He didn't didn't die by being stoned, but he died on a cross, not for his sins, but the sins of all mankind. The perfect one actually pays the penalty of imperfection so that those who have sinned can come to him and experience grace and forgiveness and redemption and receive life and life eternal. No perfect people allowed. Ironically, at the center of the church is the one who is perfect and stands without sin. And in fact, it's because he is perfect that we come together. It's because we are imperfect that we come together. He has put us all on the same playing field, all in need of the grace of God. He is taking the stones upon himself and he offers us freedom. Maybe some of you, who are here this morning feel like you have to pretend to come to church, that you have to put a mask on. I want you to know that you don't. In fact, God hates it. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. And that's why he hates the mask. External conformity is not God's way. He wants to change us from the inside out. But in order for us to get there, we need to get rid of this idea that we have to pretend to please God and to please other people. God can't stand that. In fact, in the story, he stands up and he stands against that and he chooses to get in the dirt and the mess with us. The religious leaders condemned Jesus because they thought he was a false messiah because he hung out with messy people. But messed up people were attracted to Jesus because I think in him they found this life-transforming power and they realized they could be truly and vulnerably and authentically themselves. And Jesus would actually meet their need and forgive them. As we come to the end of service, we are going to come to the communion table. Um, and there's no one here that has to, has to come to the communion table. It's an open table. You are free to come. When you came in, you received two rocks. Obviously by now, you recognize that these weren't given to you to throw at me, I hope. Um, you're like... I was like, this, this might have been a bad idea. Uh, heresy. Yeah. Um, but these were given to you as obviously representatives of the people in the story that came with rocks. And the irony is if our fists are full of rocks, we can't open our hands to receive. And when we come to the communion table, Jesus offers us His broken body, which was given to us. His spilt blood, which was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins and the invitation to live new life with him. 
But when we come with our fists full of rocks, one hand clenching to the judgment of other people and expecting that other people have to change, we actually can't open our fists to receive what God has for us. The other rock might represent the judgment that we have on ourselves and the shame that we have, and we think, I deserve this rock. I'm sure the woman who was caught in the story felt like she deserved what was coming to her. But Jesus invites us, all imperfect people, to come to receive his broken body, broken for you, the, the, the blood that was shed for you for the forgiveness of sins and the invitation to a new life. But in order for us to receive, we need to let go of the rocks. In order for us to receive, we need to let go of this human nature that we have of judging other people. We need to let it go. In order to receive, we need to let go of this need that we feel like we have to live in shame because of our mess and we judge ourselves. We need to let it go because that's not how Jesus sees us. And it's only when we let go of these things that we can open up our hands to receive the forgiveness and grace that Jesus has for us. Because what happens when the love of God and the holiness of God collide? Well, what happens is Jesus ends up on the cross. On the cross, we see the holiness of God manifested in the love of God. And we see on the cross the truth that there's no perfect people allowed, and that's why Jesus was hanging there. That's why he invites us to come. And so the communion table is open to everyone, the only The only requirement to receive communion is that you need it. If you don't need it, don't take it. But Jesus said there's no perfect people out, and if you need it, come and receive. Now, on a very practical note, as the band plays, we're going to invite you to come in your own time. There's no rush to do it. You've got time uh, to receive the elements. As you receive it, someone will say, Christ's body broken for you. As you receive the juice, someone will say, Christ's body spilled for you. As you come to the table, there's going to be a basket there, and I would invite you to think about what it means to let go of judging others and judging yourself, to truly receive. Drop the stones in the basket. Open up your hands to receive from Jesus. We're going to come to the tables. We're actually going to go to the back and around the side, outside walls. We've only got two tables, and you'll come to the front and then back down the middle aisles, if that makes sense. And then you you can receive the elements and take them uh, at any time during this next worship song. But we invite you to come. No matter your story, no matter your mess, there's no perfect people allowed. If you need Jesus, come. So Jesus, we thank you. Uh, We thank you that not only you are holy, but that you are love and you are grace. Lord, we thank you that you don't play religious games. Lord, we recognize that all of us maybe come into this space this morning holding rocks in some form. Maybe our bitterness and frustration and anger towards other people, maybe because we've been hurt. Lord, maybe our anger and bitterness towards ourselves and self-judgment because uh, we think that we deserve judgment. Lord, we thank you that you are the perfect one and that you didn't throw a stone and you invite us to follow your lead and drop the stones. And so, Lord, we drop our stones. We drop our need to judge others and to judge ourselves. Lord, we thank you for the invitation to come with our mess. We recognize that this is why you came. Lord, save us from this temptation to pretend. In Jesus' name, 
May we not be people that pretend. Lord, we come to you in need of your grace. We thank you for your, your body broken for us. We thank you for your blood spilled for us. Lord, we take these things as we remember and thank you for what you've done. And we will choose to live in light of these things. In Jesus' name I pray. invite you to stand with me if you're able I think the that there's many people in our world uh, that thinks God's posture towards them looks more like the Pharisees and the religious leaders in the story than it does like Jesus in the story they think God's posture towards them when he shows up in their mess is one of condemnation and judgment and showing up with stones. But we see that that's not God's posture at all. Uh, But I can understand how our culture comes to think that about God uh, when the people of God who express to be followers of Jesus have taken up the same job description to accuse and to judge and to throw stones. I think our world desperately, desperately needs a church that models humility and vulnerability and authenticity because the gospel and the good news is not about us, it's about Jesus. And how can people actually see the beauty of Jesus and what he's done unless we're willing to share the messiness and vulnerability of what he's done in our lives? So I'd encourage you, if you think that God is this one who's coming to throw stones with you, he's not. If you've never accepted Jesus and his grace and his forgiveness, I would invite you to do that. There's prayer teams available at the end. We'd love to pray with you if you want to take that step. If you are someone who uh, knows others that feel that this is God's posture, I would invite you to show them through your own authenticity and vulnerability that God isn't who they think he is. May we be a church that doesn't stand over people with their stones, but drops their stones and gets down into the dirt and is willing to get messy. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you again that you got in the dirt, that you came from heaven to earth, that you took on our flesh, that you lived life in our shoes, that you experienced hell in everything in between. Even though you were perfect, because you loved us and others that much. May we be people that demonstrate that same love and grace and forgiveness and acceptance to others. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for coming. Uh, Have a great week. We'll see you next week.